Nice. Just sneaking in, uh, sneaking in some wine there, huh? Yeah, uh, straight out of the bottle. Like you know, it, it's. Uh, I don't feel like putting it in the glass right now. Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and colleague, Mickey Enslicht. Hello, everyone. It's uh, it's fun. I'm, I'm happy to be here. It's been a few weeks since we've last recorded, and I I missed you, Yoel. Oh, I missed you too, man. It's been way too long, way too few hangovers. <laughs> That's true. I was away for a little bit in Germany, uh, saw some old friends, met some new friends, uh, drank lots of beer. I actually have a theory of uh, German beer, which all the Germans laughed at me about, but I, it has yet. my theory is yet to be disconfirmed. Go on. Uh, the theory is that because of German purity laws, and I'm talking about beer here, nothing else, uh, you cannot get hungover by drinking German beer. Uh, did you test that theory? <laughs> I did test it. Now, one could argue it was not a strong test of, of you know, my hypothesis, but I believe it's stronger than most tests in social psychology. How did it work out? <laughs> I did not get hungover. I mean, I had, I would say the first few days, a, a liter and a half of beer each day. Um, I know this because they, you know, in Munich at least, they will not serve you beer uh, that is in a smaller container, smaller than, you know, half a liter, 500 milliliters. Um, and in fact, in one of the beer houses, at a, uh, they wouldn't, the, the smaller container was a one liter container. Uh, yeah. I think a liter is called ein Maß, which is like just a measure. So like the standard size of beer is a liter. That's right. Yeah. And massive, massive cups uh, or glasses. Uh, and I did not get hung over once. Uh, so I'm, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm sold. German beer this is the way to go. Wow. All right. Well, I'm impressed by your rigorous theory testing. <laughs> um, let's see. So uh, what have we got on the docket uh, for today? Our main topic today was, I think it's fair to say, suggested by Mickey. Um, and uh, that topic is going to be, we're going to talk about when does the left go too far, if that is indeed a thing that happens in any quantity worth worrying about. Um, before that, though, uh, we're going to talk about a paper that we both read recently and thought was interesting. Uh, but before that, we have a little follow-up. Uh, Mickey, do you want to uh, you want to do the follow-up? Yeah. Uh, so uh, well, one of the things we like to do is to, to follow up a little bit from some of our past episodes. Uh and I would say I got uh, some feedback on, I guess it was episode four. This was uh, The Replication Crisis Gets Personal. And um, I got two, two, you know, two pieces of uh, criticism. Actually, they're essentially the same. Uh, so one was um, Chris Crandall on uh, Facebook and on email. Um, suggested that perhaps uh, we, and, and by we, really I, was was uh, maybe being too negative. Um, and I was describing how, you know, to some extent, we needed to start over as a field. Um, and he kind of pushed back saying, hey, look, not all areas are as fragile or shaky as, uh, as others. And there are, in fact, many good theories and findings in social psychology. And you could, you know, go to any textbook, any introduction to social psychology textbook and find, you know, solid findings. And I don't dispute that. I, you know, I think, I think Chris is right. I think there are, um, uh, there are clearly some, you know, things we have learned. I don't, I don't want to say that we've learned nothing. Um, but 
in that episode, I was really talking about my own experience. I was talking about my personal experience and struggles um, with the replication crisis, working on uh, two topics centrally in my career, um, one of which is essentially disintegrated, and a second uh, which has signs, uh, really worrying signs. But I think a lot more work needs to be done before we can say we need to start over that. And that second one would be stereotype threat, and the first one would be ego depletion. So um, I appreciate the comment uh, from Chris, and uh, it was it was nice to kind of engage with him. Um, now, the second uh, uh, bit of criticism was was from my good friend Malta Frieza, who I, it was actually him. He, he was showing me around uh, Munich. Uh, uh, his brother lives there, and, and, and he, he knows the city quite well. We biked around a lot, drank a lot of beer, so he showed me a good time. And on one of these bike rides, he was saying you know, he really liked the episode. He thought it was you know, insightful to learn uh, you know, your story, Yoel, about uh, kind of uh, catching Diedrich Stoppel to some extent, um, at least setting that, that series of events in motion. Um, and he also enjoyed, you know, me talking frankly about my own, again, emotional and personal experiences with the replication crisis, but he thought I was too negative. He thought I was too pessimistic. And this is not the first time people have told me this, that I'm too negative, too pessimistic about the field. And I think he's right. I mean, I think sometimes I get carried away. Um, it is an emotional uh, thing for me to talk about. Um, and he actually maintained that, uh, now is actually the best time to be in social psychology as a student because we now have all these measures in place, uh, uh, these new ways of doing things, new ways of operating, and he thought, actually, it's incredibly optimistic. Um, now, while I share his optimism, I I wouldn't say now is the best time um, for, for students. I, I actually think it might be a pretty confusing time for students. I think we're still in this in-between place. Um, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. I think I think this is a tough time actually because uh, more and more people are becoming aware of w our standard practices had real problems. We should be doing things differently, but that doesn't come at zero cost, right? So if you go uh, more carefully, uh, you don't p-hack, you replicate more, uh, that means you're just not going to be publishing at the rate of somebody who does do those things. And you're also, the stuff you're publishing is probably going to be less counterintuitive um, because, uh, you know, a lot of these counterintuitive findings were, I think, in, in my opinion, are type one errors, right? That uh, the way that those things were quote unquote discovered is, is people ran underpowered studies and p-hacked them, right? So if you're not going to do that, you're going to do more boring work and you're going to do less of it. You're going to publish less, right? So I think the market right now is in kind of a flux where uh, some folks are definitely looking at those indicators of research quality. I, uh, we have a search now and we explicitly put that in our job ad that that was something we cared about. I think at a lot of departments though, um, maybe they're not quite as on board with that stuff. Uh, so, so then those people might evaluate you uh, less positively compared to somebody who has more flashier publications, but maybe wasn't as rigorous or careful as you were. So that's a tough spot to be in, right? And I think the answer to what you should do is clear, like with an eye to the future, you should be careful, you should be rigorous, but that will in some places disadvantage you compared to people who've been less so. Yeah, I agree with that. I think right now we're in this um, we're in this in between place where you have uh, students who are being trained, at, you know, well and, and, and you know to do research, you know, with the way it should be done, uh, transparently, openly, etc., competing with students who 
are not trained as well and we don't know the right way of doing things. Sometimes their, their advisors explicitly discourage them from doing the right thing. And if one doesn't look carefully, those latter group of people will look better. Um, so I think it's still hard. I, I would say, so I agree with Malta that I was too pessimistic and negative. Um, but I don't agree that now is the best time. I, maybe in five years, uh, when, when, you know, more of this stuff is sorted out, um, I think we'll be in a better place. So I, anyway, anyhow, I appreciate the comment. And, and I, and I also, I really do take the heart, this, this notion of being too pessimistic and negative because, um, I think I, uh, I err in that direction. Um, and it's not the first time I've received that feedback. So uh, I think it's, I, I think one ought to be careful not to leave people in a, in a, in a place of nihilism, which I think sometimes the, the way I speak, I can do that. So Mickey, let's talk about what we're drinking today. Uh, yeah, I'm excited about this. Uh, so first let me, uh, I think we should thank, uh, this is our first gift. We, you know, we've been pleading with people to send us uh, booze, beer, anything. And, uh, Jessica Flake, who is a, um, uh, a brilliant uh, psychometrician, uh, a brand new assistant professor at McGill University, um, an all-around super cool person. Um, she brought us beer. And she brought us, uh, this is actually our second week in a row of drinking beer from really my favorite brewer, major brewer in Canada. This brewer is uh, Unibrew. And the beer is called Modit. Um, which, uh, for those of you who don't speak French or speak actually, you know, really Quebecois, this is a uh, beer from Quebec, from Chambly, Quebec. Maudit means damn or goddamn. Uh, so it's kind of, kind of a funny name f for a beer. This was, uh, I think, the first strong beer, uh, a, a double, uh, was a double Belgian style beer, double ale. Um, it's again a beer on Lees, meaning as Liz Page Gould taught us last time, uh, there's yeast in the bottom of the bottle and it, it could, could be used to ferment. So you can actually age these. You can you know, have them sit in a, um, in a, let's say a beer closet or something for a few years and it'll, it'll apparently get better or stronger even. Um, and this is 8% alcohol by volume. So this is, uh, this is crazy strong. Um, and there's actually a funny story. Uh, so, uh, you know, the label of the, of the beer is you have these dudes in a, in a, in a flying canoe and, and Satan the de and devil is, you know, kind of sitting uh, right, right beneath the, the, these, these flying uh, canoeists. And um, the story is that um, it's an old story, a French Canadian story when, you know, Canada was new France uh, and you had what were called coureurs de bois. These are essentially colonists, French colonists who are uh, going deep into the woods, uh, into the bush in Canada uh, or New France, and trading with uh, with local native people, trading uh, for beaver pelts. And I guess at one point they were deep in the woods and they wanted to get back to the the, the big city that that would be Montreal, um, and that was very very far away. So they they pleaded and they prayed and and the devil answered them and said, "Okay, sure, I'll give you a flying canoe to get you back to Montreal for New Year's Eve to celebrate with your loved ones, but if you." Um, mention the Lord's name or touch a church steeple, which there are many of those in Montreal, I will, I will, I will steal your soul. And uh, they made it there to Montreal. They reveled all night, got drunk, and uh, they had a tough time on the way back, though. Um, they did, might have mentioned the Lord's name, might have touched some steeples. It's not clear. Uh, so it's not clear they made it, up, made it back, uh, back for work the next day. But anyways, this is a funny story and a, and a fantastic beer. One of the... the Early, early microbrews in Canada, and just you know, proud. It makes me proud to be Canadian. This beer, yeah. So uh, our thanks to Jess for actually hand delivering this to us from uh, Montreal. 
Evidently, it's really hard to send alcohol through the mail. So some listeners have tried uh, without any success. So this is our first listener contribution, and it actually had to be carried on a plane by Jess to Toronto. Yeah, it, it turns out that not not too easy to send beer in the mail. Um, but uh, cheers. Cheers. Wow, it's been a while that I've had a Modit. Mm. Yeah, that's good. Oh, Man, I've already made a mistake here. No, it's all over. <laughs> Have you spilt it all over? Just all over my face. Okay. I can't, I can't handle this shit, clearly. <laughs> all right. Well, all right. Um, having been fortified, uh, let us talk about this paper. Uh, so this is a paper that uh, came out in 2017. It was new to me. Uh, it's in Trends in Cognitive Sciences, or TICS, um, and it's about... Uh, negativity bias, uh, whether such a thing actually exists or whether those effects are best explained by something else. So, Mickey, do you want to say a little more about what the paper, uh, well, what it's called and what they're arguing? Yeah. Uh, So the paper is titled, Why Good is More Alike Than Bad? Uh, Processing Implications. This is uh, authored by Hans Alves, Alex Koch, and Christian Unkelbach. Uh, I believe all three uh, are at uh, the University of Cologne in Germany. Um, and essentially, they're, they're kind of tackling one of the sacred cows of social psychology. Um, this finding that, you know, bad is stronger than good. This is, I, I think, um, a line by Roy Baumeister, who first, I think, summarized this idea. Um, essentially, that uh, negative stimuli uh, attract more attention, um, they are more deeply processed. Uh, they're more memorable. Um, and, you know, uh, we're more attuned to them in our environment. And this is a very robust effect. Uh, actually, uh, in our episode with Paul Bloom, uh, we talked about this briefly. Uh, this, you know, bad is stronger than good effect. And so it's a very, you know, well-known effect. And, you know, this paper, I think, for me at least, it kind of overturns it. Um, yes, bad is stronger than good, but it's not because of some, they argue, not because of some internal process. So the standard story is that bad is stronger than good because you know, you meet a bad stimulus in the environment, uh, that bad stimulus can kill you, right? I mean, some negative, you know, a predator. You better be attuned to that predator. You better you know, be very sensitive to that predator lest you get killed, lest you be prey. Um, so it makes sense from an evolutionary sense that our, 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 our psychological systems would be finely attuned to negative far more than positive because positive, they're, you know, the most positive thing we can imagine would be probably some sort of, you know, mating opportunity sex, um, but nothing really bad will happen if you miss out a sex opportunity. Um, <laughs> Depends who with. <laughs> I suppose. But it would be, you know, it would be sort of, you know, a, a positive thing that you just didn't have. Scarlett Johansson is knocking on your door <laughs> and you are too busy on Twitter to answer. Yes. Uh, I'd be really sad. I would not die. I, I suppose if I could die of grief and, uh, you know, counterfactual thinking, I suppose. Die of regret. Yeah, die yeah. of regret. Um, but I would it'd be a metaphorical death. It wouldn't be an actual death. Um, whereas, you know, some axe-wielding maniac knocks on my door, I better, you know, know to run or, uh, you know, arm myself and, you know, and, and attack. So the idea here is that, you know, uh, evolutionarily speaking, negative is, 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 is much more important uh, for our survival and our systems are, you know, are, are key to this. Um, now, these authors, they say, uh, yeah, okay, bad 
that is, you know, it seems to have all these effects, but is it really because we have these motivational systems that are so fine-tuned? Is it really the case that, um, you know, negative is so much more important? Or is it some characteristic about um, valence stimuli in our environment? And they make a really, really interesting point. And, and the point they try to make is, is very straightforward, but I think profound. Um, and the point they try to make is that there are many ways that something could be bad. Um, where, whereas there's really only one way that something could be good. So if you think about, um, I, I, and part of what, what they're building on here is that um, what tends to be good is average. What tends to be good is a modest amount of something. So let's think of something good. So, uh, you know, for, for men being tall, being tall is considered attractive, uh, powerful. Um, but if you are too tall, uh, you know, uh, there, are, there are negative health outcomes, even if you're not even considered attractive. And if you're like me, too short, then, you know, nobody even looks at you. Um, so there are at least two ways uh, 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 that height could be negative and one kind of, you know, sweet spot of height where it could be uh, positive. Right. Um, so making this argument more general, they say this is true in almost all domains, Right, so there's numerous bad things, and there's a small set of good things. So, how does this? How would this explain the negativity bias? How is this an alternative explanation? Well, because uh, well, I guess probably a key thing that we should we should mention right up front is that our systems do seem to be key, our psychological systems are keyed to novelty. To, to differences, to variety. Um, some people have built entire models of, of, of the brain based on something called the prediction error, which is something unexpected, something that is, again, surprising. Um, now, if you encounter the same sorts of positive things within any one domain a lot, well, they're not particularly novel. Um, whereas... Uh, by dint of you know of nature of the external world, uh, negative things are more novel. They are diff more they're different ways of being bad. So just you know in any one experiment, if you give people a bunch of positive stimuli and negative stimuli, you know the negative will just be more varied, uh, whereas the positive stimuli are you know more similar to one another. Um, so just based on novelty alone, you can explain a lot of the you know bad is stronger than good effect. So what are some of the specific effects that they think they can re-explain in this way? Yeah, so there are there are a few. So I think I mentioned up front that uh, you know uh, uh, in terms of negative stimuli, we attend to them more quickly, we process them more deeply, uh, we remember them as well, um, and also. Uh, and this is actually, I, I was surprised by this. I didn't know this, but I guess it makes sense now. Um, we actually are slower to respond to negative stimuli. And that could be because we're processing them more deeply than, than positive stimuli. Now, all this could be explained uh, just by frequency. All this could be explained by novelty and variety. Um, things that are novel, things that are infrequent, you also attend. You also remember. You also process more slowly. You also react to uh, more vigorously. Um, so it can explain all those things. Right. So it seems to me that these these effects that they're re-explaining, like certainly those are important. They seem a little bit like this lower level cognitive type stuff. And I have a very powerful intuition that, yeah, you know, this attention and memory stuff, that, that may be true. 
But I'm just so much more affected by, let's say, a negative comment in student evaluations than by the many positive ones. Do you, do you really feel like in your gut that this is all just about frequency? No, I agree with you. I mean, I mean, and the evolutionary story, which, you know, a lot of people complain about evolutionary psych as being just so story. So after the fact, you build some sort of story up. Um, but this one just resonates with me so much um, that there are, there are, there are costs to not processing positive stimuli, but they're, they're minor compared to the cost of, of, of not processing negative stimuli. So it's, that just seems, um, that just seems so right to me. Yeah. So that's one thing where I have a, just a real strong intuition that, um, I'm not, uh, completely, uh, resistant to being, you know, convinced otherwise with data, but I think there would have to be a lot more data to convince me that that intuition is actually um, a mistake. Uh, the other thing uh, that struck me is that loss aversion. So the idea that losing $20 is worse than gaining $20 is good um, is such a like robust and widely demonstrated ph phenomenon. And that doesn't really seem to map well onto their prototypicality frequency kind of model. Now they do talk about loss aversion in like a footnote. And I I didn't find that to be particularly convincing way of of explaining those effects. I don't know if you were more convinced than I was. I yeah, I saw their explanation for loss aversion as well. So first of all, they, they wouldn't deny that loss aversion is there, right? That's was, right. Yeah. Just about they would they would differ about the cause, right? Exactly. You know, what what causes it exactly. And their argument was it just didn't seem right. They said, um Typically, in in everyday life, when we gain money, it's in these large increments or a salary once a month, once every two weeks, um, whereas losses might be these kind of more frequent, smaller amounts, um, so that um, that's kind of how our natural world is set up. So then when you put it into a study where you have an equal you know, amount of money gained and lost, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't fit our kind of uh, what happens in reality. So... Um, I don't know. I, I couldn't. I, I couldn't really make sense of it, to be honest. With you. I, yeah, I honestly disagree with that description of reality. Like, I pay my rent every month. That's a big loss. Actually, I pay my credit card bill every month. I'm not paying out like small amounts of cash all the time for purchases, right? Usually, I hand them my card. I take the thing, and then at the end of the month, I'm like, oh, right. So, like, I that just doesn't. That description doesn't fit uh, my experience of like the world and dealing with money. It also makes some pretty strong predictions that like, let's say somebody who uh, makes money like piecework throughout the day, like an Uber driver, for example, um, that they shouldn't show loss aversion, right? Because they're now encountering these like many small gains um, throughout their month as opposed to being paid one big paycheck at the end of the month, right? I didn't, Nobody's run the study in Uber drivers to see if they show less loss aversion, but like, I'd be real surprised. I'd be real surprised too. Um, so that seems to be a hole in the theory. So, you know, as I was reading the paper, I was thinking also similar to you, like, oh, this, this is a really cool theory. So let me say why, why I like it. And then let's kind of go back to like, you know, I think these, these real objections, which I agree with, um, they say this one thing, which I think is really interesting. And that is, um, you know, uh, they make this point that sometimes psychologists, we're too quick to point to the internal environment as explanations for some of our effects. 
Um, so, you know, here, uh, 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 you know, the, the bad being stronger than good. Oh, that's because, you know, um, we emotionally process the, these things. This has to do with these deep, you know, these built in motivations for survival. And that, you know, these are these internal explanations. And they say, hey, you know, there might be better explanations or at least parallel explanations that at least need to be thought of. And that is that the external world is structured in a certain way. And maybe the way it's structured, that is, is a cause for some of these psychological effects. And they're, in a way, they're, they're, they're not as magical. They're not as psychological even. They're just like, hey, there's one process about novelty that kind of explains a lot of this stuff. So I thought that was, a, I think, a really interesting insight, um, which I don't think we, we, we think of too much in, in, in psychology. So I, I really like that. Um, but now going back to the, to, to the critique, um, so I thought they're going to build a strong case um, for this, you know, replacing some of the emo emotional and motivational theories. But towards the end, you can see they, they kind of, they, they walk it back a little bit uh, towards the end of the paper. Um, they say, uh, I think they're trying to suggest it might be in addition to, it might be an explanation in addition to these emotional, motivational, evolutionary stories uh, that both might be happening. Yeah, that's fair. And uh, I mean, I don't want to be too negative about the paper. Like I thought it was very thought provoking. Um, and I think that there are critiques about uh, needing to control for uh, typicality or frequency, like that's right on. I just, yeah, I question how broadly does this actually apply in, in explaining in the end the phenomena that we care about, right? So like, I don't know that we intrinsically care about explaining attention and memory, like at least what I care about uh, for, for negative events. Uh, I care about that feeling that you get when you like, you know, your partner says something not that nice to you, right? And why does that feel so much worse than all the times that your partner says something nice to you? That's, that's the thing that I care about. Mm -hmm. And there I feel like it, it doesn't quite go the distance for me in explaining that. I mean, yeah, and no, that, 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 that's fair. Um, but they would argue that, you know, the feelings are the same, right? So that the badness of your feeling, the, the resonance of that feeling is the same. But it has to do with the fact that when your partner says something good about you, they said, oh, you know, you're so kind. You're so gentle. You're so generous. And that's kind of it, right? I mean, those are the, there's a couple of, of, of things, you know, a handful of things um, that you could be good at. But, you know, there, there's a whole world of negativity, the whole world of ways you could be bad, Yoel. I've seen only a handful of them myself. But um, uh, so, you know, you don't hear as often, you know, the, the, the kinds of ways you could be bad. And, and you know, maybe that's what's, what's picking up. At least some is driving some of those feelings. I think that's a, a great place to leave it and take our break. Um, and I'll spend it contemplating the many ways in which I can be bad. <laughs> one, not, one way for all our listeners is you don't drink enough beer, that's for sure. So true. I haven't even drunk a third of this Maudit, which is kind of intense, to be fair. <laughs> Just wrong beer. And we're back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to reach us. Um, and let me just say again, we love hearing from our listeners. Um, I think we 
respond to basically everybody who emails or tweets at us because we're not that popular. Um, also because we like you guys. Uh, so yeah, the easiest way to reach us is on Twitter where you can follow us at four beers pod. You can DM us. Our DMS are open so you can DM us whether, um, we follow you or not. Uh, you can at mention us. If you prefer email, you can find us at fourbeerspod at gmail.com. Uh, that email goes to both Mickey and to me. Finally, our website always is fourbeers.fireside.fm. You can listen to episodes there, uh, including our back catalog. We encourage you, though, to use a podcast client if you can, because it's just so much more convenient than listening on the website. So if you have an iOS device, there's a built-in podcast client. Uh, Google just released uh, an app just called Podcasts, um, which is supposed to be pretty good. I personally use an app called Pocket Casts on Android. Um, it's a few dollars. It works great. So I can definitely recommend that. So you have a lot of options there, and it just makes your life easier. Um, if you subscribe to the show in the app, the new episodes will download automatically. One person uh, who I wanted to thank personally, so we mentioned Daniel uh, Vasfial, uh, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, last episode, uh, because he offered to send us some Swedish booze. Um, and literally right before recording, I, I see a DM from him where he writes, um, so this whole thing of sending alcohol from Sweden is just a shit sandwich. <laughs> Impossible, it seems. So he really tried hard, uh, and we thank you, Daniel. And he even offered to uh, to, to, you know, he invited us to Sweden, you know, flight, uh, included hotel included just so we can go to this one place to get booze. Um, I assume Daniel, this is first class, right? Well, I, I don't fly any other way. So yeah, me neither. So, uh, we will, we will accept your offer if it's first class. Otherwise, fuck that shit. Yeah. Forget it. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Daniel. We really yeah, appreciate thank it. Thank you. We really do. That's great of you. Okay, uh, so uh, thanks to Daniel. Um, now on to our main topic. Now, Mickey, you suggested this topic to me. Where did you get the idea that this would be a thing to talk about? Where I heard this um, is from none other than uh, Jordan Peterson, um, who I know you well. It's just sick of me talking about. You guys should see my face. <laughs> so uh, I'll give the backstory a little bit. Uh, this is a, I don't know, a month, maybe two months ago. Um, there was what is called the monk debate in Toronto. That's just the kind of uh, big fancy debate that happens uh, a few times a year. And a few months ago, the, the debate, the topic was, um, is, you know, uh, is political correctness a good thing or a bad thing? I mean, I'm, I'm not sure the exact, you know, thing that was debated, but it was essentially, you know, about political correctness. And on one side of the debate was Jordan Peterson and Stephen Fry. Um, and on the, on the other side of the debate was, I believe her name was Michelle Goldberg and uh, er, uh, Eric Michael Dyson as well, who's an academic. Um, and I, we're not going to rehash the debate. Uh, the debate is not uh, the topic here today. Um, but in, in part of the debate, uh, Michelle was responding to something that Jordan had said. He said, that, you, know, um, you know, how do we know when the left has gone too far? And, you know, this... These are his answers. He says, when we see the, the, what he called the evil trinity of equity, diversity, and inclusivity. Those things sound terrible. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, the, the answers are ludicrous in my mind. Um, but uh, I think the question is interesting. Um, I think it's an interesting one to ask ourselves, well, first of all, can the left go too far? 
And then if it can, uh, you know, what are the signs that it's gone too far? So I guess to make the question interesting, what we're looking for here is something that's sort of intrinsically connected to the ideology. So it can't just be random, violent person acts violently in the service of some ideology, right? It has to be like kind of a core component of it. And it has to be something that we can see today. So not just that we're pointing to historical examples of, you know, Soviet Russia or whatever, but that we're saying like today in the US and Canada, you can see these uh, tendencies that are coming from like kind of core things that the left is for that are having clear negative effects, right? That are like, or or not just that they're bad, but that, that they cross some sort of line of of. I don't know, what would you call it? Like decency or acceptability or something like that, right? In the same way that racism does? Yes, that's right. Yeah, something that um, I think, you know, a group of people would look at and say, no, I, I think this is, this is, this is worrying. Uh, there's something not right here. Right, right. Because like I can have a lot of like uh, left ideology motivated policies that might be in practical terms a bad idea, right? So like, let's say I want to raise the minimum wage to $25 an hour. Um, and that turns out, let's just stipulate to have bad effects for the economy, right? But that's not like, that's not inherently offensive. I'm making a mistake there maybe about economics, but it's not like offensive in the way that racism is offensive, right? So what we're talking about here is something else, something where most people would would say that like kind of crosses a moral line for me. I think so. I, I thought of this, um, and I and I derived some answers that I think are defensible. But uh, you know, I expect you to push back, UL. Um, and I'm going to say right away that I cheated a little bit. Um, by cheating a little bit, I mean um, I'm not sure my answers are, are inherent are anything inherent to the left. Okay, I think that might characterize some things we see on the left today, but they're not inherent to the left. So, okay, so I, I came up with um, uh, with three things, and and a lot of this was just you know kind of me just kind of riffing on ideas, uh, and and a bunch of this is actually uh, uh, a kind of. Uh, my intuition was pumped by reading uh, this amazing book by Alice Dreger called Galileo's Middle Finger. Um, I just adore this book. I read it uh, a few weeks ago, and. Um, um, yeah, an amazing book. So we'll, we'll hopefully maybe we'll get into some of the book a little bit. But okay, here's some ideas. Um, so number one, uh, when arguments from identity are made, okay? So by that, I mean um, that someone claims that you cannot understand what they are going through because you're white, Right, so you can you know so I, you know you can't understand what it means to be Jewish. You're Christian, um, and therefore I'm going to say what I want to say, and you can't really speak about it, um, at least with any authority. Um, so I think that's one one thing, and again, that's not that's nothing that nothing to do with 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 the left, nothing inherent to the left, but it's an argument that you're seeing increasingly made by the left. Um, so, and it's one that, uh, you know, I get frustrated with. So you often see, you know, someone, you know, people will be silenced because they are a white cis man, right? You can't, you can't, you can't, you know, opine right now because you're a white cis man. Um, and to me, that seems, yeah, I, I believe morally that that crosses some line for me. Um, and I, I told it to a friend once, you know, I said, like, I think that's, you know, to, 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 to say that to someone is insulting and it's, it, it stifles conversation. And, um, 
I don't think it's, I, don't, I just don't think it's a good idea. And, and, and then he responded saying, well, well, don't you think that white cis men have privilege in, in society and they're better off than, you know, people that don't have these three, this trifecta of things? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, they do. Um, but that doesn't mean they, white cis men can't empathize, that they can't imagine what it's like. Um, and worse, um, you're essentially stereotyping somebody. You're, it's true that on general, white cis men have more privilege. Uh, they have more stuff. They have more advantages. But not everybody um, and now we're using a stereotype to characterize uh, an entire group. Um, and stereotypes can be accurate, as Lee Jessam keeps on reminding us. Stereotypes can be accurate. So it's true, but that doesn't mean they apply to everybody. So I think the, you know, an argument made from identity, I think, inherently is problematic to me. So I'm just going to push back a little bit to see w which parts are really bothering you. Because I assume that if I said something like, I don't know. Let's let's assume I'm black, right? And I'm like, well, as a black person, I have this experience of interacting with a world that's just by nature different from the experience that you who look, you know, if you're not looking closely, you look like a regular white person, right? Um, Thank you for not saying that I'm white, by the way. You're, you're obviously <laughs> brownish. Uh, you're, you're clearly a Semite. And you know what? Like when people tell me that I'm white, I'm like, ask the Nazis how fucking white I am. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's kind of BS, but whatever. Yeah. You're, you could pass, sure. right? Sure. Um, as I like, look, as a black person, I get pulled over all the time. I get followed around stores. People give me, you know, suspicious looks. People cross the street. And the day-to-day -day experience of that is something that you're just not going to have as a white person, right? So, like, I assume that that's uncontroversial. Yes, that's completely uncontroversial. I mean, I think that's true. Um, but for me, where it crosses the line is, like, you can't understand it, that doesn't happen to me. That's true. That none of those things happen to me. Um, but I have an active imagination. And if you help me, you know, understand, um, I will. And then I'll feel empathy and sympathy for you. And I'll give you benefits. Uh, uh, by that, I mean, I'll, I'll grant you that it's harder. And, 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 and we can still have a conversation, yeah. right? So if I were to... Um, I'm still a hypothetical black person yeah, here. Yeah. Uh, if I were to say, like, statistically speaking, in my experience, most white people don't get the full experience that I as a black person have, that would be acceptable too, right? Like, that's that's a to me a very reasonable thing to say. Is so what you have the problem with is just like the phrasing of you're never gonna get it. Is that? I think it's the the assumption that there's some line that you cannot cross because you're a different identity. Um, there's some line that you'll, you'll never be able to understand. Well, you know what? Like this is this is what like liter great literature helps helps us understand these things. Um, you know, so reading James Baldwin, reading Richard Wright, um, and understanding these stories and really getting into those stories. I mean, um, that that's helped me immensely understand. Uh, at least I think I understand. You know, some aspects of what it's like to be black in America. Um, but I think. You know, th th this notion that you can't, it, it, it then it actually leads into my second point, which we can talk about in a, in a moment, but it shuts down conversation. Um, and I don't think it's going to advance um, a cause. Yeah. So 
I guess I have uh, less of a problem with the idea that I'm never going to completely understand what it's like to be somebody else. And I, I, just from personal experience, I found that even people I'm very close to that I know very well, where I'm trying a l- very hard to get in their head, I don't 100% get it. And, and so at a certain point, I'm willing to say just like, yeah, no, you're never going to know what it's like to be somebody else, right? And that doesn't have to break down necessarily along kind of identity lines. It could just be like, I, you know, we're, we're both loudmouth Jews, and yet I'm never going to know 100% what it's like to be in your head and vice versa. Um, so I feel like what you're objecting to is this kind of like, it's almost as an argumentative tactic to say like, well, your views don't matter here, right? Like you don't you don't have standing to have an opinion here because of um, the color of your skin. Um, yeah, I mean, I just think it's. Uh, I mean, I also, also think tactically, it's it just it's just not gonna help. Um, it's not gonna help us make things better. I don't think. I mean, I, I you know I understand some of these moves are done like maybe to. So the concept of privilege is, is one where I think it can help. You know, pump. Uh, like an empathy, uh, 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 feelings of empathy, right? To, to realize, hey, yeah, you know, like I have all these things, like these advantages that I'm, you know, born with that someone else isn't. Um, so that, you know, that's a great move. But um, but these are all empathy tools. And, and you know, arguments made from identity you can't understand are like anti-empathy tools. So to me, that's, you know, that's kind of a no-go. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think that's a tactic that may work in a, a very specific environment. Um, and here's where maybe you can make the case that this is like intrinsic to things that people on the left believe. So if you're in an environment already where you're given a special status by virtue of being the member of a group that's discriminated against, then you can sort of pull a power move and say like, oh, I don't need to hear from you. You know, you're you're a white guy, whatever. I don't care about your opinion. But that's not going to it's not going to fly in any any context outside of that. Right. Um and and so it's sort of intrinsically uh, kind of a self-limiting tactic in that like it's only going to work on people who are already on your side, who've already bought into your assumptions, right? If they haven't, they're going to tell you to go fuck yourself when yeah. you try that, right? Yeah, that's right. Well, that's why I think it's an interesting – I really love the way you framed the, this conversation at the beginning as it's crossing some sort of moral line. Like this to me is in some way crossing some sort of moral line. Um, and, and and I think it's also like it, it defeat it, it's self-defeating like you just said. No. Now, Mickey, you're the one sort of uh, with the roadmap here. So I, I feel like we've covered uh, this first thing pretty well, um, but I assume you have more. Yeah. So I've got two other points. Uh, we'll see how much, you know, how much, uh, how much we talk about each of these two points. Um, so the second one is actually connected to the first. And the first, again, is, you know, kind of when, when arguments from identity are made. And I think implicit in the reason I object to that is because... It adds this subjective element. So my second thing is when arguments about the paramount, uh, about the paramounts of subjectivity are made, okay? By that I mean um, when arguments are made based on one's personal experience and one's personal experience alone, one's subjective experience with a thing. Um, And that's it. Um, Now... You know, I know, yes, I'm as a scientist to some extent. I'm a, I'm a materialist, and I and, and I want there to be kind of objective verification. But that's not to, that's not to say that I, I discount subjectivity. I think subjective, introspective experience is incredibly important. But especially if some issues are in dispute, um, I think those 
um, people's subjective feelings need to be grounded in something. It needs to be verified by a third party. It needs to be, yeah, it needs to be grounded in, in objectivity. And simply taking someone's word about something is not enough. And I and I feel that that uh, in the left, uh, um, we, we see this happening. Can you give me an example of uh, when this actually happens? Yeah, I, I think that the, the best example, the clearest example would be with the concept of uh, microaggressions. Microaggressions are um, offenses that are uh, taken by, let's say, uh, stigmatized groups, by minorities, um, and they're subtle, they're slight, they're micro. Um, so a classic microaggression would be asking, let's say asking an Asian person oh, uh, who is born and raised in Canada, their parents are born and raised in Canada, and then someone uh, comes, up to them, comes up to them and says, hey, where are you from? Um, and the assumption being, uh, you're, you're not Canadian, uh, so where, you know, where are you from? Um, and, uh, not everybody, but some people find this offensive. Some people get tired of answering these questions. Um, and even though the, uh, sometimes at least, maybe often even, the person who asks that question asks it innocently and is kind of just interested in you, um, there's some offense, uh, uh taken. Um, so that'd be a classic example. I'm not sure that's a great example for the point I want to make, um, but that'd be a, a, a good example of a microaggression. By the way, I get asked this question all the time. Yeah, well, you don't look white. So, <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess, um, is your problem with the labeling of this as, as an aggression? Because I think if somebody says, look, it's just a drag to get asked all the time where you're from, um, and it I know that people don't mean it for the most part in a, a hostile or negative way, but it's just kind of a bummer and it makes me feel like I don't belong because people are constantly asking that. I assume that that wouldn't push your buttons, right? No, so not at all. I mean, I, I can, you know, as someone who does get asked this a lot and I'm born and raised in Canada, um, I am sometimes annoyed by it. Um, so I get being annoyed by that. And typically I'll answer, I'm from Canada. And they'll say, no, no, but where are you really from? No, no, I'm from Canada. Um, and then they really mean, why do you look the way you look? Um, and then I say, oh, yeah, my mom is Yem Yemenite Israeli. That's why. Um, so no, so that, maybe that wasn't a great example, to be honest. Um, I'm, I, I want to think of, of an example where someone might perceive a slight and it's not clear that a slight was given. Okay, so um, as an example, I, I've heard once a story um, where someone uh, claimed to be a target. This is not a this is not a made up story. This is a real story that I've heard. I'm going to obfuscate a little bit because I don't want to identify uh, anyone. Um, but uh, this person, um, you know, claimed actually asked someone, "Hey, are you uh, you know?" prejudice against Asian people. Um, and the person was like, what, what are you talking about? Where is this coming from? It's like, well, you know, I've noticed that, you know, you're not, you haven't, you know, looked at me very much. You haven't made much eye contact with me. Um, and I mean, you know, someone not making eye contact with you, it could be a, a sign of some sort of implicit prejudice. That's a legitimate, 
you know, possibility. But there are so many other possibilities for this happening. Um, and and again, I don't want to put thoughts in this person's mind, but this person, it's possible this person, you know, for sure thinks this person has anti-Asian prejudice because they're not looking at me. And, you know, some people on the left might say we can't dispute this because this is this person's experience. This is what they experience. They experience prejudice right then and there. Um, but, you know, the person who didn't look at her, uh, it could be the, the lots of reasons why, why, why this could be happening. Like 20 reasons, uh, one of which could be prejudice. Um, yeah. Yeah. Here I feel it uh, a little bit, which is like it does seem that there are certain topics where – if you're generally on the left, you're you're going to be very careful about being like, well, but really, right? And and we know that people aren't always well calibrated about other people's intentions, right? Like there's there's mistakes are made. That's just like a feature of social life. Um, but we would be very cautious about telling like a minority group member, well, are are you sure? Like maybe that person uh, just is socially anxious and wasn't making eye contact with you because they found you to be threatening, right? Because then you're like kind of questioning their story of uh, being oppressed on the basis of, or, you know, facing some kind of like more negative uh, behavior on the basis of their group membership, right? And that's something where you're like really, really reluctant to push back on it. Maybe, maybe for a good reason, Right. Like maybe because your first instinct is to say like, well, no, it really couldn't be, you know? So like, I do think that though, that as as a certain point, like we do have to kind of evaluate people's claims like with a measure of criticism, right? Like you don't always take people's claims about like social reality at face value. Like we know that people are wrong sometimes, right? And like, so where do you draw that line of being like, well, I want to be appropriately skeptical just because of what I know about people versus I don't want to be that person who's, you know, kind of in a motivated way denying that this stuff exists. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, this. I think, yeah, you, you, you've nailed it there. I mean, this is the problem. I mean, you know, because of attributional ambiguity, because it's not clear why things happen to us, yes, uh, sometimes uh, discrimination is, in fact, the right answer. You were discrim discriminated against. Um, but it's not always clear. Um, and I think now there is this you know, tendency, uh, again, it's not inherent to the left, but there's a tendency now, at least, on the left, to take someone's word you said you're being discrim discriminated against. Well, you've, you were discriminated against. So I think part of, again, the theory of microaggressions is that it's the subjective experience of the thing. That's it. It doesn't need to be uh, grounded in, in objective reality. Um, someone could deny that they're doing uh, what you say they're doing. And this, I mean, I understand why that would be part of the definition, because when you know, people don't often don't always realize when they're acting in in biased manners, but sometimes they don't realize they're acting in a biased manner, and sometimes they're not acting in a biased manner, um, and it's difficult to disambiguate. So, but I think it's a dangerous move to uh, simply rely on the subjective experience of someone uh, as the truth. I think it, it it then leads to problems. So here is one another example. Um, I might be getting the details wrong here. Uh, but this is now a few months ago. Um, this happened in Portland, um, where I think it was a 
bakery or a restaurant. I forget now. Um, but the restaurant uh, closed at six or whatever the time was that they closed. And as businesses often do, uh, they'll lock the doors and there are still people inside, um, you know, finishing up. But they close the door saying, hey, we're closed for business. And, you know, a few minutes after they closed, a black patron, um, you know, wanted to get into the store and the door was locked. Um, closed and 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 and, and the, I think it was a woman and she was like, "Hey, let me in, let me in." And they're like, "Oh, sorry, we're closed for business." And she pointed to the clients inside and like, "Hey, look, you, you, these are white clients in there." Um, anyway, so she essentially claimed that she was a target of racism, that she was uh, the reason they did not let her in. These employees did not let her in is because um, is because she's black, and. Uh, you know, at least if the 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 store owners are, are to believe are to be believed, it's because the store was actually closed. In any case, um, this woman videotaped, uh, videoed this, put it on social media, and people were outraged. Okay, so much outrage, in fact, that the employees who locked the door were eventually fired, even though they were exemplary exemplary employees in every other regard. Right. And here is someone who this black woman who I'm sure is well intentioned um, and I'm sure, she, you know, her feelings were legitimate. She felt that she was discriminated against. She felt that she was a target of anti-black prejudice. But in fact, um, again, if these store owners are to be believed, um, she was not. Um, and here is, you know, a case where we're kind of bending over backwards to believe the subjective experience of this one person. And I know, you know, they probably fired the, these people because it was just a PR disaster at this point. Um, but I think that's, that's problematic. That's really problematic. Um, these innocent people now who are you know, out of work because someone claims they were a target. Yeah, that's a, that's a great example. Um, so I talked about this with, uh, with Ellen Evers, uh, a former student of mine who's now at, uh, Berkeley Haas. Uh, and uh, she was sort of, uh, I don't want to say exactly excusing this, but like trying to argue for the upside of this sort of behavior. And I was like, no, this is just morally wrong. It's morally wrong to fire somebody who hasn't done anything wrong because there is like an angry mob who perceives some sort of injustice incorrectly. And and I think you're right that like that that does push moral buttons for me. Like I I have a strong belief in fairness and and of these poor fucking minimum wage workers who stumbled into the middle of something, right? And now they're fired. Like what kind of sense does that make? I mean, to be fair, this is a pretty marginal case of like Portland, Oregon, and the super hippie bakery and whatever. Like right, so this is not this is not a common occurrence across the U.S. But I think it's fair to say like. If Portland progressives got their way, that this is the way that the United States or the world would look, right? And uh, that's that's not a world I want to live in. Yes, that's right. So okay, so you know, so so far we've talked about you know at least I've talked about you know my three you know nominees. So one arguments made from identity, um, arguments where you know subjectivity is you know treated as objectivity, um, and then uh, the third one. And this one I'm getting, I'm lifting straight out of Alice Dreger's book. And again, I cannot recommend this book enough. Again, it's called Galileo's Middle Finger. Um, and I, the subtitle is uh, Heretics, Activists, and One Scholar's Search for Justice. And Alice Dreger is a really interesting person because she is both a scholar and an activist. Um, so she, at 
points in her career quit her academic life for, you know, for short periods of time to, to be an activist. And she's, you know, was mostly an activist, you know, um, for intersex people, uh, sometimes uh, known as uh, hermaphrodites. I go, I'm not sure that's the politically correct term anymore. She, as I said, is, is an activist and a scholar. And uh, you would think that uh, mo- many activists, you know, nowadays are on the left. And she, I would, I think, character- would characterize herself on the left as well. But she was attacked at various points in her activist career and scholarly career by people on the left and by people on the right. Um, and, but especially by people on the left, it seems like, and, uh, for various kinds of reasons, and I won't get into it, but, you know, towards the end of the book, uh, she kind of summarizes her, like, you know, her philosophy, what, you know, what is, how should we proceed as a, as a society? How should we proceed as scholars, as activists? And she makes one simple point, which I think is, is, is deeply, deeply true. Um, and that is, um, that truth needs to come before justice. Truth first, justice second. And so then, you know, to, to kind of answer uh, the question we posed, I would say the left can go wrong when justice comes before truth. So that seems like less intrinsically connected to the ideas of the left than, than the other two. Because uh, equally on the right, you know, if uh, the facts are inconvenient for your ideologically motivated position, your motivation is going to be to ignore them or to try to undermine the credibility of the people promoting them and so on. So like if you look at, for example, uh, climate change, you know, people on the right are more skeptical. And what they're going to try and do is to say like, uh, the scientists who are doing that research are biased or, you know, you, you can't believe the things that they're trying to tell you or whatever. So like, it, it seems very much symmetrical, just that like, people don't like facts that disagree with their ideology, right? Like there's nothing, there's nothing particularly left or right about that, is there? No, I, I agree. And in fact, I would say there's nothing particularly left or right, uh, left about any of the other two that I mentioned either. Although I think, um, at least now, the left um, is engaging in behavior uh, that is maybe characterized by the other two. And I agree with you, though, that, that, that the third one characterizes both the left and the right. Um, I would say that that characteristic, though, characterizes many activists. Okay. And I think there are many activists on the left. I mean, maybe we don't call them activists on the right. Maybe we call them lobbyists on the right. Um, but, uh, you know, if we want to use the word activist, it, it, it seems to, 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 to characterize, you know, some factions of the left. So, you know, some examples from her book. So, um, and who knows, maybe I'll get myself into trouble here by even mentioning some of her examples. But she talks about this one author named Michael Bailey, who is a um, a scholar from Northwestern University. Um, you know, he might be, you know, I've never read anything by him, but the way she characterizes him is like, you know, he might, might not be, he's a bit clumsy with his words and he probably says inappropriate things. But, um, but ultimately, you know, a good scholar and trying to do good. And his topic of interest is trans, transgenderism or transgender people. And I guess he wrote a book where he he put forth a proposition um, that, you know, trans, uh, specifically uh, male to female transgender. So, so, so uh, you know, natal men who, who identify as women. Um, 
that there are two types. Um, there is, you know, say one type that might be kind of what we, what we, I think most think of, you know, the, you know, these are people who, are, who, who say they're, you know, born in a different body and, and feel like they're, they're, they're women. Um, so that's not controversial. Um, the second one though is extremely controversial. Uh, and that is that Michael Bailey suggested that, uh, there is a, a group of transgender, uh, women who, uh, uh, want to transition because they they are sexually aroused by being a woman, right? And, and there's a term for this, autogynephilia. I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce it. Um, but essentially, you know, it, it's an erotic thing. It, it, it's a sexual thing. They they, they do this because it, it, it gives them pleasure, okay? And I guess for some trans activists, this is anathema. This is like... Goes against the party line of being, you know, again, you know, uh, you know, having a, 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 a being a woman trapped in a man's body, and this is now it's almost like a fetishistic kind of thing, I, I guess. And but you know, Michael Bailey derived at these, uh, you know, uh, theories. Well, first of all, he's influenced by, I guess, uh, some re- researchers called the Blanchards, um, and through extensive interviewing of, of, of trans people, um, trans women, um, and this, at least according to this book, characterizes. Um, you know, a subset of trans women. Um, anyways, uh, uh, Michael Bailey put out, put out this book, and he was like raked through the coals. He, you know, he, you know, these activists were lying about him. They were lying about his family, lying about his wife, his children. Um, I mean, they just, you know, really just, you, you know, just, you know, really. I think it was terrible what they did to him, and 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 you know. But the intentions were good. The intentions were to help trans people. Um, and, uh, but because, you know, the, the truth, at least the truth as one scholar saw it, went against, you know, some vision that these activists had, um, uh, it, 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 uh, it rubbed them the wrong way and then they went after him. So to me, this is, you know, this is deeply problematic, but I, but I agree with you. This is not characteristic of any one side. Yeah. So where I think you might say that it, um, specifically plays into things that the left believes is. Not in the activists per se, but it, but in how people respond to those arguments, right? So if on the left we're reluctant to say that a member of like a kind of a stigmatized identity group is wrong, then we may take the claims of these activists too much at face value, right? So you might say, I as a trans woman speak on behalf of all trans people when I say that whatever, right? And I think you do have to be skeptical of that claim. Like, are these self-appointed spokespeople for the trans community really uh, representative of the opinion in that community? And furthermore, when it comes to scientific facts, sorry, like the opinion of the community is what it is, but the facts also are what they are, right? So on two levels, I think you have to be a bit critical of people who say, well, that can't be true because it offends me personally, right? Or because it disagrees with my personal experience. Like it may very well, but that personal experience isn't representative certainly of everybody's personal experience. So I think, yeah, like on all sides, you have committed activists who are going to be um, hostile to the facts uh, when the facts don't suit them. Uh, the question is how we respond to the claims of those activists, particularly when they are themselves members of of these groups that like people on the left were naturally going to be sympathetic to, and we're going to be reluctant to contradict those people. Yeah, that's an interesting point you raised about um, 
Like we feel we're shy about pushing back. Uh, we, I mean, us on the left, we're shy about pushing back um, against the claims. Again, the subjective claims. Going back to my point too, of certain groups, you know, traditionally stigmatized groups, because we, 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 we you know, we want to give them credit. We want to elevate them. We want to raise them, but. You know, some of us, many of us are committed to the truth, committed to the facts. And, you know, it's really hard. It's really hard to push back. I have one other example. This is, you know, maybe a, 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 a banal example, um, but I think it's an interesting one, nonetheless. Um, and that is, uh, this happened about, this is maybe a few weeks ago, I saw this on Twitter, where, um, you know, you know, so, the, the U.S. Uh, is, you know, opting out of some treaty or some agreement about um, you know, promotion of breastfeeding or something like that. I don't know the precise details, but it was essentially, um, it brought up the issues of breastfeeding. Um, and, um, and then I saw people on Twitter outraged, people on the left, especially outraged, you know, actually one person in particular who I saw as a self-proclaimed, you know, she's a scientist, but also an activist. Um, and she was like, can you believe this? You know, uh, uh, you know, the U S is, is being so anti-scientific. Um, and we know that, you know, the science, you know, shows that breastfeeding is much, much better. And then I remembered this this interesting article that I read by Emily Oster, who is an economist at, a, at Brown University, and she reviewed the literature, suggesting, "Hey, let's examine the claims uh, 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 that breastfeeding is is so much better than than formula." And it turns out that at least the science is like, well, actually, it's not clear that one is better than the other. Um, but I think um, um, for 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 people on the left uh, in in North America, it's almost uh, it, it's more it's it's a moral thing to do uh, to have women breastfeed, but it's not necessarily easy for women. Um, for some women, it's very difficult, uh, uh, time consuming, and also like um, physically, it's difficult for you know uh, uh, for women. And I think some women are ashamed into doing this. Um, and now the science suggests that um, it actually might not be better. But so here was a, here was a case where I think you know. Um, you know, where again, kind of this, this notion of what is right went before the science. And that's, you know, maybe a, a silly example, but uh, that was another one I thought of that um, seemed, um, again, uh, maybe a one sin of the left, one example. Yeah. So I think Pete Ditto wrote something a, a while ago that stuck with me, which is like, this was a few years ago where there's a lot of stuff going around about, you know, people on the left are just naturally more pro-science than people on the right are. And what he said was something like, they're not, it's just that people on the left happen to like choose the right friends. Um, and by that he meant like particularly the issue of climate change has become in the U.S. so politicized, right? So if you ask about climate change in particular, um, belief in climate change, uh, people on the right will uh, you know look like they're denying the scientific consensus on people on the left one. And there's actually some interesting work uh, by Dan Kahan and others that shows that people on the right know perfectly well what scientists think. They just don't trust scientists on that issue, right? But if you focus on that issue in particular, it really looks like, oh, these people on the right so anti-science. Pick a lot of other issues, um, and there is either no ideological uh, difference at all in how anti-science people are. So GMO is that way, for example. So like the uh, number of people who are anti-GMO is proportionally about the same on the left and the right. Anti-vax, uh, anti-vaccines is another issue where that's true. 
Um, really? So that's not a primarily left? Nope, nope, it is not. So you hear about these left-wing enclaves where it's big, but if you look across the U.S. population, it's approximately equal across the left and the right. Um, so Homeopathy? Uh, I don't know. I would have to look that up. <laughs> I mean, that seems a little bit of the like dippy, you know, left wing, whatever. Yeah, granola type, but that's granola. but that's but that's granola. left, right? Yeah, yeah. So you know, I I I've done some research on people's GMO attitudes, and I first started studying this because I was interested in something disgust relevant um, that uh, people on the left would would show more than people on the right, and so I had been influenced by all this stuff in the media, you know, that kind of described this anti-GMO stuff as a left-wing thing, and then we ended up finding, and, and so do lots of other people, that it's really, there's a minimal to zero correlation with, with ideology there. Um, so anyway, the, the bigger point is like, look, like if we look at one specific issue, yeah, people on the left look like more pro-science. We look broadly. I don't think that there's good evidence for that claim, to be honest. Like, I, I think that, like, equally, people are motivated to deny uh, the scientific consensus when it's inconvenient. Yes, that's interesting. So that, that really then you know, reinforces what you, you started saying at the beginning of this, my third uh, answer, which is this is not really about the left at all. The other two maybe, uh, but this one, uh, not as much. Um, so... Uh, I have one final thought here, um, and I know we're running out of time and uh, testing our listeners' patience. We're only at an hour and 30 minutes, so that's like the, we're ahead of schedule by our standards. <laughs> that's true. Um, so okay, this last point relates to something that I said uh, on Twitter, uh, this is now many months ago, uh, in the fall. And this is when, uh, so I was... Uh, I was featured on Radio Lab, uh, this other podcast, which I'm a big fan of, uh, about uh, the replication crisis and about stereotype threats specifically. Um, and it was kind of it was kind of a weird experience to be on on that show because they have you know they recorded so much of me and they just took clips and kind of they made me out to be a different thing to some extent than I am. Um, and you know, in their kind of promos for the show, they had this one line. It makes me it makes me cringe, and that is, you know, it's so cheesy. It's like Michael Inslet tried to change the world, but the world changed him. So it's so incredibly cheesy. Um, but that first bit, Michael Inslet tried to change the world. I mean, I said that on the show. I said that yeah, I wanted to have an influence. I wanted to do good. Okay, I wanted to do good. And on Twitter, I was like, you know, that bit makes me really uncomfortable now, wanting to do good. I mean, I do want to do good. Of course I want to do good. I want my work to have a positive impact on the world. Um, but I no longer have this explicit intention to do good, to, to, brew, to, to do work that's, you know, pro-social or to do work that is, um, that activists might like. And I got a lot of pushback from that. Um, people saying, well, why? Well, why do you think that these, you know, uh, the pursuit of truth and, uh, and doing good are antagonistic? And, you know, I thought about it. I'm like, well, they aren't necessarily. Um, but as long as they're in the right order, right? So again, going back to, you know, truth before, um, before justice. And I think, you know, my previous life, um, Maybe I wouldn't say that that the justice came before truth, but they were equal. 
And I don't think they are equal. I don't think they're even close to equal. I think truth is far more important than justice. Um, truth allows for justice. Um, so anyway, but I, I know some people were, you know, uh, you pushed back and some people, some people agreed with me saying that, no, you know, I, I think the explicit intention to do good is not a good thing for scientists. Um, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think uh, we agree about that. So I think you can have a sort of a higher level belief that by discovering the truth, you are eventually going to help people. But I think having the explicit goal to do good, it, well, okay, it, it feels a bit um, arrogant or presumptuous to me because it sort of presumes that you know what the good thing is in a situation. And I, I'm, I guess, maybe too skeptical of my own ability to know that sort of thing, to be confident about that. So like, if you're working on a line of research and you feel like, okay, if I, you know, report this set of findings that will promote the ideas that I want to promote, whereas if I report this other set of findings, that won't. So I should suppress set of findings B and only talk about set of findings A, right? You're assuming there that you know what's going to lead to the good outcome, right? And you're you're sort of putting your thumb on the scales. And I would say in the long term, it may be that you're completely wrong. It might be that people find out and then you lose credibility and we all lose credibility because they see us as ideological hacks who are pushing an agenda rather than kind of neutral arbiters who are who are just trying to like report their best understanding of the world right so i think it's a very dangerous game to play to start saying like well this is the kind of research that i want to promote because i think that it's going to cause the most good what I think it's so easy to deceive yourself. Um, it's so easy to see things through your ideologically motivated kind of partisan lens and then to become exactly that hack, right? So when people say that they're activists slash scholars, I just code that as you're, you're an activist. So scientists and activists don't go together. I feel like those don't, don't, don't mix or, you know, be an activist on your own time. That's great. Like, absolutely. Um, but mixing your scholarship in your activism, that seems like a recipe for trouble. Um, so any kind of, you know, closing thoughts to wrap, wrap things up? No, no. I, you know, I feel like we, um, much more than I expected, we got to a place where we, if we don't agree, at least we understand each other. All right. Well, that's good. Uh, you have an open mind. Uh, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing at all to do with the two beers I drank. <laughs>